Tonight I'd like to talk about happiness. Thought it might be a welcome change. <laughs> However, I'm going to also talk about the obstacles to happiness. The obstacles to it and the causes of it. Because generally we have a rather limited view of what happiness, the possibility, the different possibilities of happiness in our lives. And really the whole teaching of the Buddha is about opening to the different levels, the different kinds of happiness that are possible for us. It said that what motivated him to begin teaching was an experience after his enlightenment under the Bodhi tree. It said that he surveyed the world with his eye of wisdom. And what he saw were beings engaged in all the various activities of their lives, seeking and striving for happiness. Yet out of ignorance, out of not understanding the path to that were doing and performing those very actions which were the cause of suffering. And so moved by compassion for that plight, which is really the plight of all of us, out of that great compassion he began teaching. So that if we have that desire, we have that wish to be happy, we can understand what actually are the causes to make it arise, to make it happen. The foundation understanding which makes possible the arising of happiness in our lives is the understanding of the law of karma which in its most simple form states that our actions bring about results, that our actions are not happening in a vacuum. And so this gives to each person the responsibility for the unfolding of their lives. It's not predetermined, and it's not determined by some force or power outside of ourselves. We ourselves are creating our own destinies. So if we understand this, we can begin to take responsibility for the direction our lives are taking, where we're going. Do we want to go there? We begin to set our direction. What are the obstacles? What are the things that hinder happiness from arising in our lives? There's a Pali word, kilesa, which is translated usually as defilement, the defilements of mind. 
And in some ways, this in English is it's a bit of a loaded word. Because often we hear the word defilement and it conjures up all kinds of judgment and negativity and self-judgment. And that's not what the word gilesa is meant to imply at all. Rather, it's the recognition that within the mind there are different factors. There are wholesome factors of mind, unwholesome factors of mind. And depending on which are arising, depending on which we're cultivating, different consequences will follow. And the Buddha pointed out those kilesas, those factors of mind, which when they arise, lead to suffering. The faculty of discrimination in the mind does not imply a judgmental attitude. Rather, it implies a certain wisdom that we are actually able to discriminate between those qualities of mind which lead us, which bring us to happiness, and those factors of mind which lead us and bring us to suffering. So it's important to understand the difference between discrimination and a judgmental attitude so that we can employ that wisdom in our practice. There are different levels of kilesa, of these unskillful unskillful qualities. But they all function in, in a particular way. They have a particular effect on the mind. That is, they make the mind heavy and dank and contracted and tight. They create suffering for us. The example given of kilesas is that of a heavy wool blanket which has been left out in the rain and it gets all soggy and wet and heavy and moldy and mildewy. Rather unpleasant state of affairs. That's what the mind is like when kilesas are present. That's the effect of them in the mind. There are three levels of them. The first level is could be called the coarse level of kilesa or defilement. And it's those defilements of greed and lust and hatred and anger and fear which are strong enough, they arise strongly enough in our minds to create what was expressed very um, aptly by a Burmese translator. He said, these coarse defilements cause outrageous behavior. And I thought that was really an apt translation. Just behavior that is so out of harmony with the way things are. Actions like killing and stealing 
you know, and gross falsehood and dishonesty and deception. These actions are caused by certain qualities in the mind arising. They're caused by strong anger or strong hatred or strong fear or strong desire, strong craving. And they cause a lot of suffering for us. There's a middle level of kilesa or defilement. And that is these same factors, these same unwholesome factors of mind, but they're not so strong as to cause action, but rather they just arise within the mind. They can still cause a lot of suffering for us when we're lost in the fear or the anger or the hatred, not necessarily acting on it, but still feeling it and being enmeshed in it. That's the middle level. The most subtle level of defilement, or kilesa, is that which is latent in the mind. It's not even arising as a thought or a particular emotion or mind state, but it's a factor or quality of mind which is like a seed that's waiting to germinate. Given the right causes, given the right conditions, this particular factor will sprout. So it's a very subtle level and needs a very subtle kind of purification. The reason I mention these different kinds of defilements is because these are the factors, these are the obstructions to happiness arising in our lives. So if we want to understand the path and the conditions for happiness, we have to understand the way of purifying the mind of these defilements. So the path of happiness becomes a path of purification. As we progressively cleanse and uproot the mind from these unskillful factors, we find both that the mind becomes much lighter and much easier and much freer, sort of that moldy, mildewy, heavy blanket begins to dry out a little bit. Our minds become more spacious and we start planting the seeds, we start planting the karmic seeds of all kinds of happiness to come to us instead of different kinds of suffering. The first level of purification, the first level of purity, is that which purifies us of outrageous behavior. And it purifies the coarse level of unwholesome factors. And it's called purity of conduct, purity of action. And it has two elements to it, two practices. One practice is the practice of generosity. Because generosity is the cultivation, it's the expression in action of non-greed, non-craving. So a very fundamental part of any spiritual practice is the development and the cultivation of this quality 
of giving, of offering, of sharing. And it creates a wonderful space of joy in our lives. Think for a moment. of how you feel about those people who are truly generous. When we think of them, we think of them with a lot of care, a lot of goodwill, a lot of metta. Because that's what this quality inspires. So as we cultivate generosity, we become surrounded by the sea, by this field of loving feeling. That's a source of great happiness in our lives. One of the chief characteristics of the Buddha's teaching that is expressed through the Pali Canon is lists. There's three of this and five of this and ten of this and four of this. There are three kinds of generosity. There are three levels of defilement and four noble truths and the Eightfold Path and three kinds. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> different minds respond to that differently. <laughs> the beginning level of generosity has been called beggarly giving. You know, and it's that kind of giving when we're very hesitant and very reluctant even to give that which we don't want. It's kind of the leftovers of what we have and we haven't used it in 10 years and the thought comes, well, let me give it. Well, next year I may use it, keep it. And you go back and forth, but finally we give. It's a beginning. Modest, but it's a beginning. (laughs) The next level of generosity is when we can begin to share more easily and more freely and we share the same, the same level of things that we would use for ourselves or have for ourselves. It's called friendly giving. So there's a kind of equality in our sharing. The highest level of giving, and it's really a place we can aspire to in our practice, a direction for us, is what has been called queenly or kingly giving. And that is when there's delight in the mind, when there's great joy in the mind of giving what we hold most precious in our lives, of that which we value the most, and precisely because we value it the most and find it the most precious, precisely because of that, we find the greatest joy in giving it. And I think you can feel the wonderful happiness that can come when generosity, when this quality of mind has been developed to that extent. There are countless stories of the Bodhisattva before he became the Buddha of offering his life, offering his body to other beings out of compassion, offering that which was most precious, most valuable. We may not be at that level yet, but it points to a certain understanding and a certain sense that generosity 
as a quality of mind, a quality of heart, a quality of action, can be practiced, it can be cultivated, it can be strengthened, just like mindfulness, just like concentration. And it becomes the cause of a very great joy in our lives, in our relationships. So that's one aspect of purity of conduct, that's one cultivation. The second, the second aspect of purity of conduct is the aspect of morality. Sometimes people confuse morality with being moralistic. They're two very different, very different qualities. Because when we think of somebody who is moralistic, there's a quality in that of being very self-righteous and judgmental of others. That's not at all what this is about. The quality of morality that we cultivate is that aspect of our being which practices non-harming. Non-harming of ourselves, non-harming of others. And it's expressed most simply in the precepts. We undertake some very basic moral precepts. Not to kill and not to steal. And not to commit sexual misconduct, which really means causing harm to other beings through our actions. Not being deceptive in our sexual relations. Not lying. Not getting intoxicated. Not clouding the mind or deluding the mind. These are very basic qualities of life. Though sometimes people, especially in Western culture, relate to them as ascetic disciplines, they're really quite basic. (laughs) And they serve as the purification of outrageous behavior. They they kind of tone down that level defilement of mind which can cause behavior which is so out of harmony and which is so much a cause of suffering. This is purity of conduct. Not only does this level of practice or this level of purification bring about a happiness in itself, the happiness of non-harming, of being in harmony, the joy of generosity and what that generates for us, but it also creates the karmic seeds. These actions of generosity and non-harming are the karmic seeds for another kind of happiness in our lives. And that is the happiness of different sense pleasures. It's not by accident that some people live very pleasant lives, pleasant sights and sounds and tastes and sensations, 
pleasant surroundings, and other people live in very difficult situations, a lot of painful surroundings. There are causes, there are conditions for this, individual karmic conditions. The cause for sense happiness, and it is a joy for us, even though it's temporary and even though it's impermanent. It's not by any means a lasting happiness, but still it does bring us a kind of ease in our lives and a kind of lightness and a kind of joy. It's a kind of happiness that we all appreciate. It's nice to be living in a nice situation, to be with good people. The Buddha talked of this kind of sense happiness. He talked of it in the human realm. He also talked of the possibility of a higher level of sense happiness, sense happiness of the deva realms, the heavenly realms of existence. And there are wonderful descriptions of these realms where beings, if they've established a certain level of purity of conduct, of generosity and morality, the karmic fruit of those actions is rebirth in those realms. Descriptions of beings with bodies of light. So when you sit to meditate, there's no pain in the knee. It's just all nice tingles, (laughs) luminous tingles. (laughs) Everything beautiful on all sides, through every sense of the karmic fruit which comes back to one at that time, is that through every sense door, it's pleasant sight and pleasant sound, pleasant sensation. There's a realm of heavenly musicians, for those who are into music. The descriptions of these wonderful pleasure groves, where these beings of light sport. (laughs) Garlanded with jewels and flowers. There's a realm of heavenly intellectuals, (laughs) beings who delight in that particular sense pleasure. It's even possible to hear the Dharma in these deva realms. It's said that Maitreya, who is the coming Buddha, is actually now living his last life in the to Sita realm, one of these heavenly realms, teaching the Dharma. Of course, many people here are quite skeptical of all of this. When one of my teachers used to talk about these heavenly realms, he would go into these wonderful descriptions which really made me feel very happy just listening to them and imagining them. He would go on and on, and at the end he would say, you don't have to believe it. It's true, but you don't have to believe it. And so I would suggest, since it is a very, very classical part of the teachings in all the traditions, and actually there are many beings today who have the power of mind to see the different realms, higher realms and lower realms, at least to cultivate an openness of mind with respect to it. And so whether one considers the sense pleasures of the heaven realms or the sense pleasures that we are all familiar with of the human realm, 
It's to understand that there are causes for that kind of happiness to arise. And if we understand the causes and conditions, then we can cultivate them, we can practice them, and they become the cause of this kind of happiness in our lives. This is all the power of understanding, of discriminating, discriminating wisdom. There's another level of purification which works to diminish the middle level of defilement. That is, those unskillful factors which don't cause outrageous behavior but are still arising within the mind. All those factors of anger and hatred and fear and greed. This level of purification is called purity of mind. First is purity of conduct. This is purity of mind. Purity of mind has to do with cultivating a basic level of one-pointedness, of concentration. Because concentration has the ability to keep the hindrances at bay. It's as if you had a pond of water, and in the pond there were a lot of weeds growing. And you built a fence in that pond, an underwater fence, to keep the weeds outside of a certain area. So as long as the fence was there, that area of the water would be clear. That's how concentration functions in the mind. When it's there, when it's present, it serves to keep the defilements, to keep the galaces at bay. They're fenced out. They're not uprooted yet. But for that period of the time, the mind is pure. It's clear, it's collected, it's one-pointed. There's a certain kind of happiness that comes not only from this keeping at bay the defilements, but also from the very power of concentration itself. And it's actually a happiness that is superior to the happiness of the sense pleasures. When the mind is concentrated, when it's collected, there's a feeling of unity a feeling of wholeness, a feeling of well-being in the mind and body that creates so much happiness for us. At that time, there's not much interest in going after sense pleasures because we're experiencing something higher, something more fulfilling. It's said that it becomes very easy to give up a lesser happiness when we are enjoying a greater happiness. So there's not any great sense of renunciation or giving up or you know, very ascetic discipline that we follow. In a very natural way, as we begin to taste the flavor of a concentrated mind, there's a lot less attachment to the different sense pleasures. We can still enjoy them, and we can still experience that level of happiness, but there's not the same strong pull. 
because we found within ourselves something quite different. It also enables us to undertake a practice which connects us in a most wonderful way with all other beings. And there'll be much more said about this practice. It's the practice of the four Brahma-viharas, of metta, of loving-kindness, of compassion, of joy in the happiness of others, and in equanimity. The practice of these four, they're called the Brahma-viharas, they take on substance when we practice them with a concentrated mind. And we collect our mind in the feeling of metta, And we are generating this quality of love to one other person or to a group of people or to all beings. That creates a wonderful happiness for us. It becomes possible. The experience of this happiness becomes possible as we practice the second kind of purification, purification of mind which is the development of concentration. And that's really the... where we're all starting here now. You you come here on retreat, and the beginning of the retreat really is working to collect the mind, to gather it in, so that it's not so scattered, not so restless. We begin to concentrate. And over a period of time, through the power of this purification, we begin to experience this kind of joy. This is not the end either. Each level of purification is building on the one before. Purity of mind is not possible without purity of conduct. If our conduct is outrageous, it will be impossible to concentrate the mind. Because all these thoughts of our actions keep coming and they make us restless and remorseful. Purity of conduct makes possible purity of mind. Purity of mind makes possible the next level, which is called purity of view. And this is when we begin to get into the Vipassana insights. When we first start looking at our minds with even a very small base of concentration, we start out really on the concept level. We start out discovering something of the nature of our body, of our minds, of our personality, of our psychology. We begin to recognize certain patterns patterns of behavior, patterns of thought, patterns of emotion. It's as if we hold up a mirror and we take a look at it and say, yes, begin to see ourselves in a clear and focused way. Very often, this level of insight becomes a diversion for people. Because this kind of insight it can become fascinating. 
we start to understand the patterns of our behavior, the patterns of our thought and feelings, we get so many insights into our personality, into the personalities of others, it's easy to get trapped in that. And so a lot of the emphasis on retreat in the practice and in the interviews is in the noting of it and coming back, coming back to the breath, coming back to sensations, in order to go on to a deeper level of insight which has to do with the process of what's happening, not the content. This is a major area of... It's a major leap in the practice. When we go from content to process... And it's at this point that purity of view, purity of understanding, begins to develop. And I'd like to talk about some of the insights that occur at this time in practice, because they are the gateway insights to a whole progression of understanding which actually culminates in the experience of the unconditioned. And so to have a framework of understanding for these gateway insights is very helpful in the practice. The first one that arises as we go from the content of things to the process is the discrimination or understanding of what in Pali is called Discrimination of nama and rupa, or mind and matter, mind and body. When we start out, and people generally in the world have a pretty solidified, unified sense of the I, this mind-body complex as being who I am. At this level of awareness and of insight, we begin to observe that there are two simultaneous processes going on. There's the process of knowing of consciousness and the different objects. We can't separate them, but we can distinguish them. There's one short discourse that the Buddha gave. He called it the All. And in it he described the totality of our experience. And he did it in six phrases. Master of succinctness. He said... There's visible objects the eye, the eye visible objects and the knowing of them, the ear sound and the knowing of them, tongue taste, knowing of them, nose smell, odors and the knowing of them, body sensations and the knowing of them, mind, mind objects and the knowing of them. That's what we experience. Six objects arising and the knowing of them. Knowing of sight, of sound, of smell, of taste, of sensation, and mind object. Do you experience anything else? 
It's quite amazing when you think that this whole complexity, which we call I and self and me and our life and the world, all comes down to these six things. Knowing of sight, knowing of sound, knowing of smell, of taste, touch, of mind objects. And so this process of mind and body is a process of knowing an object arising and passing moment after moment. Knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object. As an example, when we're with the rising and falling or in and out, the rising movement or the in-breath, that's material. It's just material elements. The noting and the knowing of the rising is mental, is mind. Is the in-breath physical, the knowing of it is mind. The falling movement is material elements. The knowing of it is the mind. Two processes. If we had a corpse lying up here and we were pumping the stomach, there would be rising and falling. As far as we can tell, there's no knowing going on. The material element is there, rising, falling, rising, falling. No consciousness, no knowing. What's the difference between us and the corpse? The material objects are there, but there's something else going on in our experience, hopefully. (laughs) Although sometimes it may feel like a corpse. What else is going on is that there's the material elements and another distinguishable process which is the knowing of it. They arise together, pass away together, and they're two distinct things. There's a sound. The sound is material elements. It's air hitting the vibrations of air hitting the eardrum, or sight, or sensation. These are physical elements and the knowing of them. In each moment, there's this pairwise arising and passing away. What happens in our practice, and this is, as I say, a very, a very um, important understanding to observe, as we are watching, as we're mindful, moment after moment, we're paying attention to the rising and falling of the breath, or whatever the object is, through a continuity of careful attention, there comes a point when the mind actually observes this. Not not on an intellectual level, but we actually see for ourselves, yes, there's two things happening here. There's the knowing and the object. What's so important about this is that it is the first beginning of a real understanding, of a genuine understanding of anatta, of selflessness. Because we see that what this process that we call self, that we call I, what this process is, is just this knowing an object arising and passing, moment after moment after moment. So we get that glimpse of the selflessness of it. To observe the process of consciousness is quite subtle. 
I mean, it's difficult enough to, to observe the physical movement. To observe the knowing of it is quite difficult. It takes a lot of attention and a lot of care. The noting, the mental noting, actually is a stepping stone to this level of insight. Because even if we cannot yet quite clearly see the knowing an object, it's not so difficult to observe the difference between the noting mind and the object. The noting mind is also mental phenomena. As we begin to have our notes land on each object, and there's a concurrence with each object, not before, not after, just as there's rising, there's the noting of rising, just as the fallen noting of falling, hearing, noting of hearing. We do that moment after moment, and it begins to become apparent to us that the physical object is one thing, and the noting mind is something else. Again, it's not so difficult to grasp this conceptually. What we want to do in our practice, and the reason for structuring a retreat like this, is so that this insight actually becomes experiential. This is purity of view, purification of view, because we're purifying our understanding of the misconception of a sense of self, of a sense of I. There's one other insight which comes at this time in our practice. And it follows this purity of view. It's the insight into cause and effect. It's based on the understanding that there are two processes of mind and body and they're interrelated. We can't separate them, although we can distinguish them. There's a certain relationship between them. And the relationship between them is one of cause and effect. Because of certain factors in the mind, the body moves. Because of certain physical sensations, different qualities arise in the mind. Mind conditions body, body conditions mind, it goes back and forth. The reason that there's so much emphasis on noting intention, intention is a very subtle object. You have to be very attentive, very sharp to catch that moment just before an action begins. It plays a very critical role in our understanding this relationship of the mind and the body. Because as we note intention again and again and again, it's, it's, the insight comes through repetition of seeing. We actually can get that sense of illumination that it's because of the intention that the body moves. Without the intention, the body doesn't go anyplace. Intention arises, the arm moves. Intention arises, is standing up, is turning. 
we begin to understand this connection, this relationship of the mind and body. And it goes the other way. Now you experience pain at the end of the hour, or the beginning of the hour. And you're noting the pain and it's uncomfortable. The pain is a physical sensation. It's hardness or tightness or whatever. The physical sensation becomes the cause of a a desire in the mind to change position. The desire is mental. The desire can become the cause of an intention. Mind conditioning mind. Intention becomes the cause of movement. Mind conditioning body. And so we begin to understand the workings of this complex, this constellation. The importance of it again is in that it illuminates the understanding that there is no one home. That it's not happening to anyone. That it's just the mind and body elements interacting in an ordered way. It's not a chaotic way. They're interacting, each one conditioning the other. No I, no self. Intention is not I, it doesn't belong to me. The movement is not I. And it's this understanding which really is basic to freeing the mind from the cause of suffering. There's one short short little discourse the Buddha gave. He gave it to somebody who was in a big hurry to get the teachings. He had traveled a long way and he met the Buddha out on the street and he said, teach me now, please. You may die, I may die. I want to hear it now. After some back and forth, the Buddha finally agreed. The man heard this teaching, which I'm going to say, and he got enlightened. So please listen carefully. (laughs) You may be able to leave tonight. (laughs) It really expresses just the essence of the whole practice. What the Buddha said to this man was that in the scene that is seen with the eyes, there is just what is seen. And in the heard, there is just what is heard. And in the sensed, that is smell and taste and sensed in the body, there is just what is sensed. And in the thought, there is just what is thought. In the seen, just what is seen. In the heard, just what is heard. In the sensed, just what is sensed. And in the thought, just what is thought. In each moment, there is just what there is in that moment, just that experience of the moment. No I, no self, no superstructure around it. An arising and passing away of phenomena. As we develop this insight in our practice, and this is not a far, 
far-off goal. This kind of insight comes from a very basic and careful attention. And this is this is this level of understanding is possible for everyone if they're willing to really be mindful and watch moment after moment. Understanding nama rupa, mind and matter, that the noting mind and the knowing mind is one thing and the object is something else. To really pay attention to that, to pay attention to the cause and effect. As we go through these levels of insight, it opens up another whole kind of happiness, which is quite nicely named Vipassana happiness. Because after we get through the beginning level of difficulties and obstructions and hindrances, and through these levels of insight, there comes a time in the practice where there's tremendous clarity and joy in the mind. We're seeing everything arising and passing so clearly and so distinctly, the mind becomes like shining crystal. And this is a happiness that's even superior to the happiness of concentration. Because in this happiness is the foretaste of freedom. It's still not the end, and there's a whole further progression of insights and understandings and openings which we go through. But at this point, it's the feeling of having come home. We really have gotten a good sense, a deep sense, actually a very, very profound sense of the nature of this mind and body, the nature of who we are. And this foretaste of freedom creates a wonderful and very deep happiness in our lives. One of the great beauties of the practice is that when we aim for the highest happiness, all the others come. Because as we're practicing to free the mind, we're cultivating purity of conduct. And so the happiness and the joy of generosity, of non-harming, of sense pleasures comes to us. As we are aiming, as we're practicing for the highest peace, we cultivate purity of mind, and so our mind becomes more concentrated. We experience the joy, the happiness of that. As we practice for freedom, for realization, we are also cultivating purity of view, the various insights and understandings that come. And so we experience the happiness of that. Really, the Buddha taught the path of happiness, and that's the path that we're walking on. Let's sit for a few minutes. An awful lot of behavior falls between what you would call outrageous Mm -hmm. and just being in the mind. Mm -hmm. Where do you fit that in? 
I know at the level of defilement it falls between the two, between oh. the co- between the coarse, the really coarse defilements, mm-hmm. and that middle level. It's a spectrum, uh, rather than. You okay? You you're just yeah, I yeah, see. Yeah, you yeah. just naming points. Huh? Yeah. Because yeah, it seems yeah. an awful lot of stuff falls yeah, in there. Yeah. Good. Thank you. These uh, levels of happiness we're talking about aren't, aren't they conditional? Will they not pass yeah, away as yeah, well? Yeah. I actually didn't have time to, to oh. work up to the unconditioned, which is really the highest happiness. Yeah, yeah. all of these. Even with the past and the happiness. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's why uh, I said it was, a, it was a foretext of freedom. It was not, it was not actual freedom. Uh, yeah. Too bad. <laughs> <laughs> so there's more. <laughs> There are a lot of stories of these people who found this instant enlightenment like it seemed to happen much easier in those days. It still there are occasional examples of it occurring, but it's rare. Does it? It's rare. Does that mean that you skip all those intermediate steps and you automatically see everything? It's either that or some it Sometimes the progression through the steps can be very quick. It can be a few mind moments. Yeah. A few mind moments. Yeah, I mean, r- r- really quickly. Some of the people living today who this has happened to. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's, that's not usual. Most people have to go step by step in a very progressive way. Thank you.